Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Red Lawhorn. He's a technically trained non-physician with 20 years of experience in peer-to-peer patient support groups for chronic pain patients. His work and commentaries have been published or featured at the U.S. Trigeminal Neuralgia Association, the American Council on Science and Health, the Journal of Medicine on the National College of Physicians, and the National Institute for Neurological Disorder and Stroke. Today, we're here to discuss the comments related to the CDC opioid prescribing guidelines. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lahorn. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Joshi. I am uh, pleased to be with you and to support you in this effort. The CDC um, is now revising its opioid prescribing guidelines, something that's long overdue. And in February, it released its draft guidelines. It began accepting comments at that time. And for most people, that may seem like a period of just going over the guidelines and reviewing what needs to be changed or supporting what's positive from 2016 onward. But the comments are actually a little bit more important than that. Can you explain to the audience just how important these comments are? Basically, uh, the Federal Register has solicited public commentary on a document that is almost 215 pages long. And public is taken to mean both individual members of the public who are in one way or another uh, affected by the issue and medical and clinical professionals who have a background in the area, the subject areas that are touched on by the both the original and revised guidelines. Uh, really, the use of the Federal Register on this subject is something that has occurred as a result primarily of Congress telling the CDC on the first round that, no, fellas, you're not going to get away with um, announcing your guidelines and then closing the comments on them three days later, which is what they tried to do in, in 2015. So there's a lot of political controversy and disturbance surrounding this entire subject. We're, we're going through, obviously, a, what is, is generally widely referred to as a so-called opioid epidemic. It's an opioid crisis, certainly, but it's not an epidemic, at least in my view. And the comments give us a sense of what people are thinking about this issue and why they are concerned with what the CDC is doing. I hope that's responsive to your question. No, it certainly is. And I think it underscores just how important these comments are in that many of the people who are drafting the original guidelines wanted such a short interval for the comments to be solicited. But I think before we jump to the comments, let's talk about the committees and subcommittees that are all involved in the guidelines. You, you know this more than most. There seems to be this veil of secrecy in the process between organizations like the BSC and those who are actually drafting the guidelines. First off, why are there multiple organizations involved? And second, how do they all work together? Oh, boy. <laughs> That last question, may, we may find out, is, is something of an oxymoron. 
they sometimes do work at cross purposes to each other. Let, let me try to summarize, however, who some of the actors are in this. Um, first of all, USCDC, when they issued the guidelines, uh, basically tasked the National Center for Injury Control and Prevention with the process of doing the, the of hiring in the consultants because the NCIPC did not have within their on their their payroll people who could uh, basically as government employees uh, investigate this subject adequately. They 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 brought in uh, ex external uh, consultants. But they were by no means the only agency involved in um, trying to formulate the original guidelines. In fact, they had tasked the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is actually not very well known agency, it's small, but AHRQ does outcomes surveys and outcomes research for several um, agencies of the US government when a particular issue is coming up for some sort of regulatory action. And AHRQ has done a number of studies under tasking from NCIPC that have a, some bearing on the generation of guidelines or standards of practice for the prescription of opioids and indeed for the treatment of pain generally. Now, you mentioned another bit of alphabet soup, the BSC. The BSC is the Board of Scientific Counselors, and they meet a few times a year. The people are nominated to that board by NCIPC and others. They can also volunteer to be members of, of that board uh, and of other groups associated with it. Um, and they basically advise NCIPC concerning uh, major issues of process and of content in a number of different matters. And opioids are not the only ones on their list. They're basically what you might think of as a council of elders of people who have um, appropriate credentials, either in, in for the you know for our purposes today in anesthesiology or. Uh, the clinical treatment of addiction or the clinical treatment of pain or quite a number of other uh, related uh, specialties. I think the NCIPC is a group of something like 15 people from all over the U.S. Now, when the guidelines were issued in 2016, there was a requirement that uh, the CDC would revisit them after some period of time. But CDC put in place no programs for explicitly monitoring the outcomes of those guidelines. There, were, there was no actual, at least that I know of, there was no actual program of monitoring doctor's practices or uh, uh, patient outcomes during that period, other than the already in place kinds of, of um, reporting mechanisms that, that go with Medicare, and, uh, and uh, Medicaid and various uh, trials type uh, reporting measures. So there was, a, there was a large blind spot involved in generating the original CDC guidelines. 
And it turned out that when the guidelines were, de were developed, that um, things that the guidelines said were truly taken out of context by several state governments. And a document which was written from the perspective of requiring safety reviews became a de facto limitation on the amount and duration of, of opioids that could be prescribed in about 38 states. The states took the guidelines not as guidelines, but as standards of practice that could be legally enforced and that medical boards were, in, were either empowered or required by legislation in the individual states to legally enforce as uh, limits on dosing and limits on dose duration. And as a result, the 2016 guidelines effectively wrecked the practice of pain management. What basically happened here is that about 2018, 300 practicing doctors came out with a essentially a shot across the bow for the CDC. And the shot across the bow basically said, guys, you messed up so royally that you're harming the practice of pain medicine seriously, and you're driving patients into collapse and suicide. Stop. And in March of 2018, um, following the manifesto of those 300 doctors and following some startling uh, public positions that were quoted by the the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Family Practitioners and other organizations representing more than half of all practicing doctors. CDC came out and said, well, oh, no, no, there was never any intention for these guidelines to be mandatory. Um, they shouldn't be applied that way and patients should never be automatically cut off from opioid uh, therapy without tapering. And there is a standard that the FDA has put out that, that guides tapering, even when, it's, even when it's being enforced involuntarily over the patient's objections, which has happened in literally hundreds of thousands of cases in the US since 2018. So a lot of people got into the act on this. Now, uh, let's fast forward a little bit to December, roughly December of 2019, beginning to, to respond to the, the, the complaints that patients were being harmed, CDC announced in that time that they would be doing a revision to the guidelines they published in 2016. And they requested volunteers to sit on what was called an opioid work group that would report to the Board of Scientific Counselors of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. And quite a number of people did indeed volunteer for to participate in that group. And very unusually, for perhaps the first time, two of the people that were selected for that group were patient advocates, not uh, addiction specialists or uh, physicians per se, although the, one of the two advocates indeed has a, a PhD as a medical ethicist. So they were asked to look at the guidelines as they were being developed 
by a group of five writers that were selected and announced. I don't remember how early in the process they were announced, but I don't think it was immediately at any rate. And the Board of Scientific Counselors was to receive a report from the board, excuse me, from the opioid work group. And then when the report was rendered, the work group was supposed to go out of business because it was a, a temporary measure. And they have, in fact, gone out of business. The draft of the guidelines was given to that group of about 18 or 20 um, um, specialists in the opioid work group. And the specialists reviewed it, but they were never tasked to come with to a consensus on what it said or didn't say or, or should say. They were allowed to basically contribute their own individual opinions and or biases, and there were probably a few of those too. And in July of 2021, the draft guidelines were brought up before a public meeting of the, of the Board of Scientific Counselors. And in that meeting, the results of the overview that the opioid work group had performed were made available. And all of that is documented. The CDC has published the meeting, the meeting minutes and has published the briefing that the um, opioid work group generated. And finally, and at long last, they've revealed the names of the people who did all of the writing. And it turns out that I think four out of five of those people were the people who did the original writing in 2016 and messed it up so badly. And in that meeting, there were some very remarkable um, revelations from the opioid work group. Remarkable to the extent that some of the members of that work group had basically said, you got it wrong again. And there is no scientific justification for many of the claims you have made it, to back up the 12 recommendations that the, the writers of the revised guidelines uh, had developed up to that time. That was something of a controversy, but it, it was handled entirely in private, except for the briefings that were given by the opioid work group and uh, by the uh, members of the, the writers team. Uh, so I've gone around and you've seen some of the problems here. There are so many players in this business, and I haven't even mentioned FDA yet because they, are, they, they need to be players in this business and have, have not been nearly as effective as they should have been. But basically where we are right now is that in February of this year, the CDC released the proposed revised opioid guidelines. They were originally written as a guideline on prescription of opioids to adults with non-cancer chronic pain. They have been broadened to treat not only chronic pain, but acute pain and what is called subacute pain. And they are retitled, not just as a guideline on prescription of opioids, but a, a guideline on the practice of pain medicine. That's not a direct quote, but it's basically what it amounts to. Um, so they basically 
significantly broaden the scope of the guidelines and treated much wider area of pain medicine with the guidelines and made some significant changes in the 12 recommendations that that uh, they tabled and around which they organized the, the, the guidelines. And once again, at least in my view, and in the view of many practicing medical professionals, they got it wrong. They got it significantly wrong. What a title that I used on this uh, when I was writing uh, for publication on it was, in my view, the revised guidelines represent a little shop of horrors version 2.0. And there are multiple reasons for that, and we can we can go into those, but I think I should probably not monopolize quite as much as I have here and let you continue with the kind of questions you think are pertinent here. Well, I think the timeline you presented was quite pertinent and in many ways highlights the importance of comments from people like yourself and from so many others like the American Association of Family Practitioners. How have the comments been received so far? Uh, it, it seems like certain comments have been redacted or removed. Uh, is that standard policy? It's not only not standard, it's probably illegal. But um, basically what CDC uh, said, or actually I should say NCIPC said within CDC was that they don't want to have names revealed in the comments. And they specifically don't want the names of the writers to be revealed in the comments, even though they are public knowledge. And they don't want the names of individual practitioners revealed because there could be an issue with regard to um, either liable or defamation of character or, or in some manner damage to physicians who basically have a right to, to due process. And, and we can understand that, but there's, that's not where they stopped. Uh, I went back into the collection of comments that were generated up to last Monday morning. And there's 3,525 of them as of that time that had been uh, registered. There were quite a number of others still being processed. Out of that 3,525 comments, the term redacted occurred 583 times. And when I checked my own comments, that term appeared in the documents that I submitted to the, um, the Federal Register and comprised blanking out of the names of the physicians who had published references that I quoted from. Now, there's no possible reason for doing that. When you quote from references, in fact, scientific practice requires you to name the source both by author and by, by publication venue. So the, redact the, the reason for reactions in this case, I think is somebody has either just messed up or used a, a tool for redaction, an automated tool for redaction that messed up, but it doesn't make any sense. The, the wide number of, of uh, comments that have been redacted 
for names, as far as I know, and as far as I know, it's only for names. So far, I have seen no evidence that the content of the guidelines, or excuse me, the content of the um, comments has been um, altered in some way. Let's other, get into that. Let's get into that a little bit because I think that's very fascinating, and your work on this area is particularly interesting for people since we only have a few days until the deadline to submit the comments comes. Right. So 583 times, you yep. mentioned the redacted comes 583 times, but that's not all what you have found. In fact, you followed keyword trends in the comments. You've seen chronic, and again, I will have the list presented on the webpage itself for everybody who's listening. You sure. have chronic listed, 1,994 times, doctor or doctors appears 1,682 times, addict or addiction appears 900 times, and the list goes on. What do these trends reveal about what people want the CDC to take away from? And what does it reveal from what's missing in the guidelines? Well, okay. <laughs> That's a very broad, a set of issues, but let me let me try to to summarize in in a, in a fairly brief sense. A lot of the guidelines, a lot of the comments were submitted by patients, and I have been encouraging patients who read my stuff in social media to do just that. And what I've told patients is, if you feel that the original guidelines have damaged your pain care, or if you have read enough of the revised guidelines to have an opinion on whether the new ones will uh, damage your pain care, then this is something CDC needs to hear and they need to hear why. So a lot of patients are writing in. A lot of organizations are also writing in. I haven't found the AMA's comments yet, but I'm, I would guess I'm gonna be able to if I, if I do another forensic search on, on the comments database. Um, Suicide occurs 625 times in this, uh, in the, among the, the 3,000 comments. And apparently it ha has really struck a nerve with the CDC because I'm seeing notifications in Twitter just this morning that when suicide appears in a record that the CDC may respond to the one who placed the comment to provide information on a national suicide hotline. What we know, but what the, the guidelines as they were originally written and as they were revised does not acknowledge is that literally thousands of suicides have occurred in the last five years among patients who have been denied pain care because of the content of these guidelines. Now that is not a surmise, that's a fact. And it's been pointed out to the CDC repeatedly. And CDC has never, to my knowledge, responded in any manner that actually engaged with this issue in a, in a serious and grounded way. I don't think they've claimed that suicide doesn't occur because it does. And, and there is ample published data to indicate that it occurs particularly in people who have pain that hasn't been addressed. One of the alarming aspects of this whole thing that patients are now quite aware of and that many doctors are aware of is that the 
probability of a patient attempting to commit suicide increases significantly among patients who have been forced tapered. And by that, I mean patients who have been told that they have to reduce the dose of opioids that they are taking for whatever reason, whatever that is. Uh, and it's against their will that, that they are tapered down. We know also that medical crisis occurs considerably more often among patients who are tapered for whatever reason, either cooperatively or uncooperatively. So that, that's published data in the public, in the, uh, um, the medical literature. There's no issue to that. The other thing that comes out of here, out of the comments that I think is worth, worth reviewing is that patients are fed up to, the, to the, the eyebrows with the idea that they should be or could be addicts on short, short exposure to opioids that are administered in a medical context. Patients know that's just a damned lie. Yeah. And in fact, no less an authority on this than Dr. Nora Volkow, who is director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, with a co-author, I believe his name was McMillan or McClellan, I don't remember which it was, with a co-author, published a paper in 2016 in which he said, opioid addiction is not a predictable outcome of medical treatment with opioids. And moreover, she said that the incidence or risk of uh, opioid addiction or substance use disorder is very low, even among patients who have factors in their medical histories that are sometimes associated with higher risk. And this was in 2016. So this is not news to anybody, and it shouldn't be news to, to the uh, uh, CDC. But interestingly enough, that reference is not quoted in the revised guidelines at all. It isn't mentioned. So a few other things that pop up in the comments that are being submitted. The term law occurs 471 times, and that's probably related to the fact that so many states have turned the guidelines into law. The term harm or harms occurs 452 times. The term DEA occurs 426 times and very often in the context that patients are well aware that this, the DEA has used the CDC guidelines as an excuse for persecuting patient, excuse me, persecuting doctors out of practice and for imprisoning significant numbers of them. So what we've got here is an increasing public awareness that there is serious, uh, there are serious failings in the guidelines, both as originally proposed and as, as proposed for revision. The term damage occurs 353 times. And the term forced appears 571 times. Now this is probably in multiple contexts, but one of those contexts is taper, mm -hmm. which occurs 359 times. Patients voice the sentiment that their pharmacies or pharmacists 
are denying them the full, the fill, the filling of, of legitimate prescriptions. And in fact, that some insurance companies are refusing to, to pay for them. Denied occurs 248 times. Um, Tylenol occurs 179 times. And in, in many of the places where it occurs, patients are telling the CDC that their doctor has refused to prescribe opioids after they had major surgery and has instead given them Tylenol or um, Advil or something of that nature for major surgery, which in my view is outright malpractice. Um, so you get, you get into a lot of these issues and as you go down the list, um, fewer people tend to mention the, the, these terms or particular terms um in the list and then there's a list and, and you'll be you'll pu be publishing this with, with the uh, your comments on the uh the, certainly yeah we will have that on the web page itself uh, if we had to maybe take one or two points from your analysis in the keyword trends what are the top one or two points you would state well this comes and if i may i, I want to be clear on this too. If I may, I, I, would, I would add not only what I see in the keyword trends, but some, some sense of its significance from a deep reading of the guidelines. When I did my comments to the revised guidelines, they were 26 pages long and they involved over 40 references. Now that's to address a document that's 211 pages long and includes probably 300 or more references. So, you know, I, I was being nice. I didn't go back and take it line by line. If I had, it would have been ruinously long. Basically, what I'm reading from the comments, and I hope very much I'm not reading this into them. I don't want to misrepresent what people are saying. What I'm reading from the comments is that although the comments are supposed to be voluntary, excuse me, the, 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 the guidelines are supposed to be voluntary and physicians are supposed to be able to tailor their treatments of patients to each individual. The CDC doesn't mean it. Mm. The CDC is trying to pull a fast one by offering a relief from the perceived mandatory nature of these guidelines. But they left a whole lot of stuff in the guidelines and added more to it that makes it abundantly clear that any any physician who prescribes above 50 morphine milligram equivalent daily dose does so at significant risk of sanctions that that those terms and those words are never used explicitly but the term risk occurs so often and in such context that it is clear that the risk is not to the patient, it's to the physician. The term risk, let's see, where did that occur? If I can find that, it occurs 275 times. And very frequently it occurs in the context of direction to the, to the practitioner that they must perform a risk versus benefits analysis and make decisions on whether to prescribe originally or to change dose or to increase dose based on the balance between perceived risks and perceived uh, uh, 
benefits. But here's the fascinating thing. Buried down where most people will never read it yeah. in, in these guidelines, unless you're being really careful like I was, there is an acknowledgement that doing a risk analysis is very, very hard, and there are no accepted instruments for doing it. There is no risk analysis technique, and I include in this uh, techniques like NARC's score, which is widely used to analyze PDMP data, that's prescription drug monitoring program data. And it's widely used to, to deny care to patients, I might add. Um, there are no accepted, generally validated instruments or tools that can allow a doctor to make an assessment of risk versus benefits in an individual and to be safe when they, when they choose to prescribe opioids. Yeah. It's not there. And that's one of the reasons I call uh, the February release of these uh, revised guidelines a little shop of horrors. Mm -hmm. Because it's basically, the term I've used with patients is the CDC speak with forked tongue. They're talking out of both sides of their mouths. And they're saying, well, the, it's intended to be voluntary. It's intended to be guidance. But you really, 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 really ought to have a very, very strong reason and documented out the proverbial kazoo if you decide to prescribe at all and if you describe to, to increase dose above 50 MMED. In the original guidelines, there was a term 90 MMED that um, was basically the threshold at which a general practitioner was expected to turn the case over to a specialist in pain management. 50 MMED in the original was the threshold at which a doctor was expected to do a risk versus benefits analysis and to decide whether everything was well and the patients was responding well. Anything over 50 MMED was sort of in the gray zone until you reached 90 and at 90 general practitioners were supposed to get out of town. Well, interestingly enough, 90 MMED has been taken out of the revised guidelines, but 50 MMED hasn't. And I think it occurs, let's see, how often does 50, the term 50 occur? I have to go back and dig that one out. Oh, the number 50 occurs 302 times. Hmm. Very often in association with the term morphine milligram equivalents. Now, there's a lot of other things wrong with this thing that we may not have time in, in our remaining half hour to go into in great detail, but let me, let me summarize a couple. For a document that is supposed to be voluntary, we should get really concerned when seven out of 12 of its recommendations are identified as category A, which are intended to apply to almost all patients. If you think a category A recommendation is voluntary, you and I are living in two different worlds. Certainly. Because a category A recommendation is a red flag to any lawyer that supports a hospital or a pain practice. Because it says, oh, if you're not doing this thing that the CDC says, CDC says you're supposed to be doing, as far as the recommendation, these seven recommendations are concerned, you really are out on a limb. Mm -hmm. It's intended to be that it's intended to be read that way. 
the other thing that is is alarming to me actually two there are two other things that are alarming to me and both of these things i think are responsive to the question that you ask as i started this segment the second recommendation in these guidelines is that non-opioid um, techniques are preferred to opioids and they include in that any of the techniques for which there's evidence in the field of alternative medicine they basically are saying to you that Tylenol is preferable to Percodan, which I might add it isn't, and that acupuncture is preferable to um, hydrocodone, which it isn't. And the reason that it isn't is that there have been studies done quite a large number of trials have been done with non-opioid and in fact non-pharmaceutical non therapies. And those include things like acupuncture and massage and um, cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, psychological support counseling, catastrophizing therapy or acceptance therapy to say, you know, you're going to have pain, get used to it. And there were over 5,000 of those trials. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in 2019 did a fairly serious look at what that trials literature really says. And what they found was that out of the 5,000 or so trials they were able to identify, only 218 of them were of sufficient quality that they were worth reading and analyzing in depth. The other 4,800 or so failed on major criteria. They couldn't even really be analyzed. Wow. And what, and what they, well, they, I might add, those, those are my words now. They're not the words of AHRQ. AHRQ tried to, to phrase this in a, in a much more positive manner. Um, what they found was that usual and customary therapy that should have been compared to the uh, the trial of an of a of a um, an alternative, it was so poorly documented in the literature that most of the time you couldn't tell what usual and, and customary therapy was in the trials that were published. So what the, the AHRQ people were forced to assume, and I'm using that term exactly, they were forced to assume that these alternative therapies were administered in addition to whatever usual and customary was. And what that means is that there have never been published trials on an either or basis to say, how well does a patient do on acupuncture when it is used as a substitute for opioids. There's almost nothing in the literature that establishes that. And yet, the way that the revised guidelines are written, it makes clear that they expect clinicians to substitute non-opioids for opioids. This is a major scientific error. And as an error, it is the kind of error that kills people. So I, I know you can hear 
the passion in my voice at this point. I don't mean to of be course. a broken record, Jay. I really mm, don't. No, not at all. But I do think repetition is important because we need to continue to get our message out there. And part of us talking today is not only to hear your experiences and your expertise on this matter, but really to encourage everybody who is listening, who may be on the fence about placing a comment to go ahead and do so. And for those who are on the fence, Red, what advice would you give to them? If you have been harmed by the guidelines that were published in 2016, the odds are strong that you will be harmed by further restriction of opioids as a, an outgrowth of the guidelines that as they are written uh, in 2022. Those odds are very, very strong in my view. And I think, I think in the view of a good number of other much more qualified medical clinicians. So my advice to patients is yes, by all means. Uh, and I hope you will publish the link, uh, Jay. By all means, log in on the Federal Register site and enter a comment and tell the CDC you have been harmed and you don't trust them to write these guidelines. They should retract, repudiate, and not replace these guidelines because they have no expertise. And it's abundantly clear from what they've published that they have no expertise and no and no legal mission. This the what the CDC has done is they've tried to take over a branch of medicine that they don't have legislative authority to take over. And they've done it with a narrative that is biased, unscientific, and actively damaging to both clinicians and patients. And it's damaging to them, not just because it says a lot of dumb things, but because it tries to convey the picture that they're being nice. Yeah. And they're not. <laughs> yeah. So that would be a, that would be my advice to, to to patients, and in fact, I'm I'm offering that advice in social media fairly widely. So the other part of this that would be that would be kind of useful to do is is to basically tell them, um, I want my comment to be read by the peer reviewers whose names you haven't revealed yet, the guys that are supposed to come in, or ladies and gentlemen that are supposed to come in and take the guidelines as you have, have published them and arrive at some conclusions with regard to what parts of them need to be changed. And I want, I want you to take my comment. I wanna be sure the peer reviewers actually hear what I have to say, because what I have to say is you messed up so bad that you can't repair it. Mm. Retract these guidelines and do not replace them. So you place that directly in the comment itself. I certainly did. Um, let, uh, let me ask you this, and I think that this is a good way to kind of uh, segue into some of the more concluding remarks. For somebody who is now heeding your advice and ready to comment on the CDC guidelines, and as you had mentioned, I will place the link on the webpage, what sort of style should they use? Should they speak from the heart? Should they try to use more professional language? give some guidance to those who want to write a comment but may not be sure how they should phrase it or draft it right. the, the 
<clears throat> we've got two different types of, of people who are going to be commenting here actually three types of people commenting patients themselves need to speak from their own lived experience to the, to the maximum extent possible there are there are patients out there by the tens of thousands in social media who have who have told the story that their doctor has come to them almost in tears to say i can't go on treating you because it's dangerous to me I'm 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 fearful that I'm going to I'm going to be put out of business and denied my income or maybe even sent to prison because the DEA is is actively persecuting people like me. If somebody has said something like that to you then repeat it because it's it it illustrates the nature of the problem. If you have if you have medical credentials or or clinical credentials if you've ever treated patients as a doctor or as a, a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Um, if you've ever treated people and you have training in this field, then stand up and be counted. Thank you so much, Red. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Every conversation is a moment of learning. And I wish that the listening audience can heed your wisdom and actively place comments that reflect their lived experiences and what they wish those who are drafting the CDC guidelines and those who reviewed the guidelines will take away from. And so thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you.